0: Hello, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's new podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, a weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in DC covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Here's what's happening this week. Professors have spoken out at community meetings hosted by University President Thomas LeBlanc about lacking funds and resources to hire professors and teach needed courses in the Department of Religion. Currently, the department has no full-time faculty teaching Hinduism or Buddhism, two of the six religions religion majors would need to study.
1: And this week, The Hatchet looked into what students prefer, the Metro or Uber. Our Metro editor looked into which one is faster and which one students use most often.
0: As the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities Director prepares to depart for military leave, students and alumni say that this is an opportunity for the university to reevaluate the office. I'm here with Meredith this week to talk about her story on gender wage gap among the highest paid administrators. So Meredith, can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to look into this and kind of report on this story?
1: So my REIT is finance, and as part of that, I'm always looking at university tax documents and found this kind of imbalance in salaries with women administrators um, and noticed that it was something that I should probably look into and talk to experts to see if this was a significant thing. For the
0: story in particular, who were kind of the major players here? What administrators specifically were you
1: looking at? So before fiscal year 2016, Peggy Barrett, former dean of the Columbian School of Arts and Sciences, and Beth Nolan, the senior vice president and general counsel, were the only two female administrators for the last four years. So then what were the major takeaways from doing this story? In looking through those other tax documents, I found out that there were only two schools Of 14 of our peer schools that had a smaller percentage of female administrators to the total number listed on their tax documents. And so that was significant to all of the experts that I talked to who said that, in general, there is so much more work that could be done to keep women in higher administrative positions just across universities.
0: So were experts giving any specific advice to university administrators and officials
1: on how they can combat this issue? Experts basically said that there are some problems all across the country with women in higher education and how they're considered by not only their male peers, but about how all of their colleagues look at women and how they should be leading in higher education. And they suggested that it's really kind of an attitude shift that maybe people are getting too comfortable with how females are represented in those top level positions and that, you know, people can't really get comfortable. Otherwise, there'll never be that push for true equality in wages and also in representation. Well,
0: thank you so much, Meredith, for telling us a little bit more about the gender wage gap going on here at GW. Anytime. I'm here with another Hatchet News editor, Liz Conacher, who is here this week to tell us a little bit about a story she was working on regarding the Corcoran construction project. So. Liz, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the reporting process and how you came about
2: this story? Yeah, so we originally came upon the story, actually one of our hatchet photographers alerted us to the fact that the Corcoran conditions weren't that great because he actually takes classes in the flag building, which is the building that you traditionally think of when you think of the Corcoran School of Arts and Design. And so he had to wear a mask because of the the dust and the air from all the construction and Then when I went to the Corcoran School to interview students, I found that a lot of them had the same concerns. Um, They had to wear masks because there was just so much dust in the air. A lot of them were coughing or it aggravated their allergies or asthma. And also with the noise of the construction, some students had trouble hearing their professors or participating in class because they have these metal ramps. That are right next to a lot of the classrooms that construction workers use to just move things back and forth throughout the building. But the ramps are really noisy and those disrupt class as well. So it was really interesting to hear student perspectives and hear all the things that are going on in the Flag Building that I hadn't even realized was happening. And has the university said that they're going to do anything to address these issues, these concerns? We got a response from uh, Sanjeet Sethi, who's the dean of the Corcoran School. And they gave us a lot of information about how they were trying to help students, listening to their concerns. They've hosted a town hall where they um, heard student complaints and then tried to address them from there. They've tried to give students space away from the noise that's in the basement of the flag building. And they've also provided masks upon request, which is a little interesting to think of, like getting a mask upon request for a class. But um, they've done that for students as well. And they also have a monthly check-in to check the air in the building and make sure that it doesn't have any contaminants, that students won't get sick from the construction and the dust.
0: So when you were talking to students in Corcoran, kind of what was the general consensus after doing that?
2: The general consensus was that the construction was obviously very disruptive. Um, They all had very similar concerns about being able to breathe, having space it being a huge inconvenience. Uh, One student expressed to me that he wasn't sure where he could exhibit his artwork for class because a lot of the places where students would commonly exhibit their work were closed for construction. So um, students had concerns about that. The building kind of smells, obviously, because it's a construction zone. So it's just, and it's very difficult to navigate as well. There are a lot of exits that are, well, not exits that are blocked off, but you have to go kind of a very awkward way to get to those exits and it's easy to get lost because so many things are blocked off so um, they try and keep students all in the same area in the basement of the flag building and I think that helps a little bit but then the air quality down there is pretty poor that's what I heard from students essentially. Well thank you Liz for telling us a little bit more about the Corcoran Construction Project and we hope to hear from you again
0: soon. This week in culture, we have two stories to talk about. The first of which is about someone at GW who has a little bit of a green thumb. And here to tell us more is
3: Liz Preventure, our culture editor. Thanks, Leah. So a food magazine here in D.C. called Edible D.C. had their first annual awards this year. And they have about 15 categories in kind of more unique categories. So things like best school garden, best use of surplus food, and then best home cook garden so this year best home cook garden went to the assistant men's basketball coach hodge turner and his wife vivian
0: that's so cool that we have that kind of gw tie to this competition so can you tell me a little bit more about hodge's garden and kind of how he was chosen to win
3: yeah, so Haj and his wife Vivian, who works as a lawyer here in DC, started this garden over the summer and they had this kind of overgrown backyard and decided to just fully take it over this summer. They added a raised bed garden that was about 30 feet by 3 feet, so it's a pretty good sized garden. And they had help from a local urban farming group called Love and Carrots come in and help them create this garden over the summer and then they've kept it up, the two of them, and then their three kids.
0: I love that. So, how were they ultimately chosen in the end?
3: So, Edible DC chose a panel of judges from all different realms of the food world, and those judges narrowed it down to the top three finalists. And then after that, Edible DC opened it up to more of community voting. So, for most of the month of September people could go on and vote out of the top three for who they wanted to win the competition. And then the judges pick and the community picks were both announced on Monday the 16th.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. This is the first time I'm hearing about this, but I love that it's annual and I'll get to look forward to it every year. So I hear you also have another story about fall flavors for this season, and it's a bit of a metro monopoly. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, so two of my reporters looked at popular fall flavors like pumpkin, apple, cinnamon, things like that, and picked DC's top foods in each of those categories. So we picked four different flavors and kind of picked the most unique and then also the best tasting dish in that flavor category around DC. So what was your favorite food in the story? So there's a store in Eastern Market and Union Market that also has two food trucks called Puddin that has a brown butter bourbon bread pudding. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: a bit of a tongue twister, isn't
3: it? It definitely is, but it is delicious. It has like the really rich brown butter and it's savory, but it also has like the sweetness of dessert. It's really good.
0: That sounds amazing. And especially when it's getting colder outside too, that sounds like a great comfort food.
3: Yeah, for sure. They're definitely known for their comfort food and have really great Southern style food.
0: Well, thanks so much, Liz, uh, for telling us a little bit more about these fall flavors, but also our assistant basketball coach and his unexpected hobby. Hope to hear from you next week.
3: Yeah, thanks, Leah. I'll see you then. That's all for this week. Thank
0: you for tuning in to hear all the news happening in Foggy Bottom and around GW. You'll hear from us next week with Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Leah Potter and Meredith Roten and featuring culture editor Liz Previncher. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, managing editor Tyler Loveless, and assistant copy editor Emma Tyrell. And music was produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Liz Conacher for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. See you next week.